Welcome to Coming Home Well. I'm your guest host, Liz Booker, a retired Coast Guard helicopter pilot and writer on a mission to influence the demographics of aviation through story. As literary aviatrix, I have built a community of readers and writers around books featuring women in aviation and have interviewed authors about their books and their writing and publishing journeys. A large portion of these stories reflect the ways in which aviation history is indelibly linked to military history. This interview is a rebroadcast of the Aviatrix Book Review podcast in collaboration with Coming Home Well. While my interviews span the diversity of aviation experiences, I hope the ones that are featured here will educate and inspire those who listen. These are human stories of grit and courage, failure and success, that happen to be about women in military aviation from around the world throughout our history. Hello, welcome to the Aviatrix Book Review. I'm Liz Booker, and I'm thrilled to announce that the Aviatrix Book Review website is now live. There you'll find all the books we're talking about today, along with hundreds of other books featuring women in aviation history, as well as contemporary stories in a range of genres for all ages. I'll also be posting short pieces on our blog on the website featuring various women in aviation history written by several of our authors, including my guest today. She is the author of 14 novels, which have earned a long list of literary awards. She was a writer of Arthurian legend first, but after being introduced to aviation through her husband and earning her private pilot's license, her focus shifted to more modern historical fiction, much of which features women pilots and is set in World War II. These books bring that period of history to life, educating us about our women pioneers in aviation through adventure-filled stories all of which are based on her meticulous research of real people and real events. She is perhaps best known for her young adult novel, Codename Verity, which hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list in March of 2020. But that book is just one of several works that she's written since then that feature the women who flew for the British Air Transport Auxiliary, the Russian Night Witches, the German Luftwaffe as test pilots, and she has even written a book about a couple of 1920s aerobatic performers and wing walkers. I invited her to share this rich history and her work with us. You can find her at her website, elizabethween.com. Elizabeth Ween, welcome. Thank you very much for having me here. I am so excited to talk to you. You I've had so much fun talking to all of our authors, but you bring a special combination of passions for me, both for aviation and for writing for children and young adults. And not just any YA author, you are the YA author. Anytime anyone in the YA world finds out that I'm a pilot writing about girls who learn how to fly, they say, have you read Elizabeth Ween's work? Mm -hmm. So I'm super excited. You have so much to teach us both about women in aviation history and about writing. 
But first, I wanted to know how you were introduced to aviation because you were a writer first, right? I was a writer first. I really like to think that I was always interested in aviation. And when my husband came along, he actually was working when I met him on a private pilot's license. And that kind of made me aware that maybe people can do this, but it wasn't something new. I loved a series by K.M. Payton called Flambards, which was a young adult book when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, but also made into a television series. And it was set around World War One, and it had this aircraft designer and all the planes that they used in it were little models. Another kind of mainstream thing that I really loved was The Rocketeer, which is a Disney movie, live action Disney movie that was made in kind of the early 90s, I think, and was based on a really racy graphic novel, but they, they you know, cleaned it up. <laughs> and it's set in the 1930s in Los Angeles, and it's this barnstormer who gets a jetpack. And I can remember loving this movie. It's like it's still on my top 10 favorite movies. When I was a graduate student in the folklore department at the University of Pennsylvania. So it, I really, I had that bug before I met my husband. And then when I met him, we did a lot of our courting in small aircraft. And we sort of had this plan that we were going to fly across America coast to coast. This is like the big plan. And we were thinking about maybe doing that in 1997. And instead, we had our first child. And, that, and we still haven't done this. And I, when I sold the rights to my second novel in 2001, yeah, I spent that money on flying lessons. I'm no longer current. And what I do now is we go flying together and I take the controls. Good for you. After That's so great. And I fly until it's time to land. <laughs> and then, <laughs> That's and awesome. then he takes over. So you were writing historical, you were doing historical research before when you weren't writing yeah. about flying. And so tell me about that transition and and then let's talk about these ladies who flew on the European right. front. Tell me about all Well, that. I was working on a PhD in folklore. I, my background is all very literary. I have a degree in English. I have two degrees in folklore. And that's kind of where I learned to do research. And for one reason or another, I had to tell, give somebody my AP test scores recently. And I couldn't remember what I'd taken. And I looked them up and I'd taken... These are my three AP tests, English, like language, literature, and writing, American history, and European history. There you go. <laughs> that makes total I mean, sense. Meant to be, I didn't remember taking European history as an AP course, but there you go. And so I was obsessed with King Arthur, and I was a big fantasy reader when I was a teen. And I started, you know, spinning my own tales based on what I was reading. And when I started learning to fly, I was in the middle of writing this Arthurian series, but I really wanted to write about flying. I, it was, you know, it was just eating at me that I needed to be writing about flying to the point where I started putting all these kind of like jab in the ribs kind of puns and jokes into 
the books that I was writing. So I have one character who there's a chapter that's called a dog fence sort of a joke. And then there is a character who is a pilot. He's like a river pilot. (laughs) But you were going to work it in there, whether there were pilots flying or not. I was going to get in there. And so what I had an editor who was kind of trying to think of innovative ways to, to showcase her authors. And one thing that she did was she put together a series of apologies and I wrote a short story for the first one of these, which was about flying. And I then wrote another short story for a different anthology from the point of view of a passenger who has a pilot who's making poor decisions and has to kind of take control, (laughs) not of the plane, but of the decision making. It's called chain of events. So the passenger in the small plane has to like get in there and break the chain herself and then the next short story that I wrote and as I'm writing these I'm like progressing through my own experience at the controls of an aircraft the next short story that I wrote was from the point of view of a pilot and this was about a girl who disguises herself as her dead brother and becomes a spitfire pilot during the battle of Britain And I had always been a little bit obsessed with World War II, although I hadn't written about it before. And it kind of shocked me. I I was always really interested in the civilian side of things. So like the home front and the resistance and people who were forced into concentration camps. And it surprised me that when I finally wrote a story about World War II, it was like about somebody flying in combat. But I wrote that story and it was very well received in the anthology in which it was published. And my editor asked me if I would consider writing a novel, if not actually based on it, but drawing on the same time period and, you know, featuring maybe a woman pilot. And what came out after a while was Codename Verity. And Codename Verity is about a pilot and a spy, and they're both young women, and their friendship. And that's kind of what it is at the base. But it is constructed as a confession by the character who is a spy. And she sort of tells the story of the character who is the pilot. And it all comes to a big, terrible climax at the end. As you know, because I think you've read it. I have, um, and I love it. But but it just, it really did. It was the culmination of a lot of different things that made it just all come to the forefront. And in many ways, it was also based on a story that I'd made up when I was like 12 years old where there is a, the heroine is captured and is in the resistance and has this like antagonistic relationship with her interrogator. And so it was a very comfortable place for me to be writing, even though I knew a lot more than I did when I was 13. And because it kind of made my name and changed my life, it also produced an expectation that I was going to produce more of the same stuff. Ah, and okay. I find that there's quite a bit of pushback when I suggest writing, say, fantasy or an environmental thriller or whatever. You know, they're like, we want more women pilots. But it's we also, want more women it's pilots. Also meant that, 
<laughs> well, I mean, we do want more women pilots. <laughs> we want to read about women pilots too. Yeah. And it's also meant that I've had people come to me and say, can you give us, in 2018, 2019, I had three books published and they were all commissioned. One was nonfiction, one was special sort of niche short fiction for dyslexic readers, and one was a Star Wars book. But they were all, I was asked to write them as a result of being this person who, you know, specializes in writing fiction or historical stuff about women pilots. So, but yeah, that's something that like, it's now defined me. I didn't so mean that to happen. Well, we're grateful it did because you come to it not only with your skill for writing, but also with your skill for doing this historical research. Tell us about the groups specifically of women that you have written about. The first group of women that I wrote about, the Air Transport Auxiliary Pilots, they were auxiliary to the Royal Air Force and they did ferry and transport work for them in the UK um, while World War II was going on. A fun fact about the ATA, the Air Transport Auxiliary, is that they were the first British government organization to pay women and men equally, which they did from 1943, which I think is cool. That is impressive. I found out about them while I was writing the short story about the Spitfire pilot. And I thought, I think I kind of ended that story by saying, oh, you know, you might be able to join the ATA when she's no longer a Spitfire pilot. And so that was what kind of gave me the seed. I went to this museum exhibit at the Imperial War Museum in London that was focusing on women in war. And it had displays on the ATA, which I hadn't known about before. This was in, oh, it was in 2004, early 2004. And so that was you know, eye-opening to me. And they probably had some information there about the Russian women who flew as combat pilots because I knew about them when I started writing Codename Verity. I don't know when I first knew about them. They've been on my radar as long as like women in aviation has been on my radar. And so the first, that first group of women I've written about is the ATA, obviously. They were not here in the UK. They were a civilian organization like the WASP were in the US, but unlike the WASP, there were also men who flew for the ATA. So pilots who were disabled in some way or were too old to join the Royal Air Force or had been civilian pilots beforehand or whatever would join the ATA. And I believe that the ratio was about eight to two. So about a fifth of the ATA pilots were women, which is, you know, number. Yeah, better than we're doing in most places, for sure. That's right. So then I actually had, when I was working on Codename Verity, was wondering how I could get these Russian women in there because I knew about them. And I really felt that I didn't know enough about Russia. I didn't know enough about growing up in the Soviet Union and about what it is like to be culturally Russian to be able to tell a story from the point of view of one of these women. And what ended up happening was somebody asked me to write nonfiction about them. And I felt that I could do that because I could do the research and I could write it, you know, as a Westerner without, you know, bringing 
whatever sensitivity I was able to it, but without trying to get into the heads of these women. And of course, as I started doing research for it, I discovered that I kind of did need to get into their heads. I was really, as I was researching it, I became fascinated by what really drove them to want to do what they did. And I ended up doing a lot more background research on the Soviet Union and what made its people tick in the 1930s to try to understand this generation that was so eager to defend its country. And I, I was kind of talking here as if everybody knows what I'm talking about. These are the women that you will most often hear them referred to as the night witches. They weren't all called that. They, there were three groups of Soviet women who flew in combat in the Second World War, and they were all under the same commander. And one of them were fly, one of these groups were flying these um, training aircraft that were, you know, basically made out of balsa wood and fabric, and were harassing German encampments on the front at low level in the middle of the night. And those are the ones who ended up being called the night witches. And they were not the only unit flying these planes who were doing that. They were one of hundreds of similar units. They just happened to be the only female unit. And they actually organized themselves in such a way that they were very successful, which is the remarkable thing about them. And people tend to think that they were given the terrible planes because they were women. That was not the case. The Russians were using whatever planes they had for, you know, whatever pilots they had. But they also had a unit that was a fighter unit, and they also had a dive bomber unit. And the dive bombers were flying these really very state-of-the-art aircraft, which took a crew of three. So a pilot, a navigator, and a rear gunner. And they ended up having to fly in mixed air crews because women didn't have the upper body strength required to reload these guns in flight. So you could do it on the ground, but not in flight. And there was one woman who had like road crew or something like that, who was able to do it. <laughs> she was like the only female air gunner in this um, regiment. But yeah, there were, they did amazing things and it, the story itself is an amazing story. Um, so I've written about them. I've written, as I say, nonfiction about them. And so one of my shorter books is also about them. My shorter books for teens, which is called Firebird. The nonfiction book is called A Thousand Sisters. So if you want it easy to read history because it's aimed at teens, A Thousand Sisters tells you all about the Soviet women who flew in the Second World War. And the other group, that I think we've mentioned is German test pilots, which isn't really a group. It's, it's two. And the most, famous of, the most famous of these is Hannah Reich, who was just quite a character and very close to the inner circle of the Fuhrer. And I, another of my shorter novels is called The Last Hawk. And it's about a young girl who is a German girl who is a glider pilot and ends up working with Hannah Reich on some propaganda. And just the, it's a very short book, but it gives you a little bit of insight into some of the secret projects that Luftwaffe was working on, which are all really black. The incredible kind of like the crazy mindset, the tunnel vision 
that did those who were kind of entranced by Kevin the Third Reich. So I was very lucky in researching the Russian women in that a ton of them, when after Stalin died and when things started relaxing a little bit, a ton of them started telling their stories and they told their stories in interviews and they wrote memoirs. And a lot of these were translated into English. And then there was this nifty little exchange where some of the wasps went across and met them, you know, 40 years later. And there was a, a woman called Anna Nagel who was a wasp and wrote, as I'm sure you know, and wrote a book, A Dance with Death, in which she went and interviewed like uh, 40 of these women who were at that point still alive and got them to tell her their story through the help of a, a translator. At least one, if not a couple of those women were at the Women in Aviation International Conference when I went back in like 2009, 10. Very cool. Uh, yeah, they we would have a flight suit social for military women, and yeah. they would show up to that. Oh, that's so really cool. cool. Yeah. I'm really jealous. Goosebumps to even say that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really cool. It's lovely that we've been able to memorialize them both through yeah. you know first person accounts and then also through fiction. So it's <laughs> wonderful. I was hoping that you would read a passage from one of your books. When I went to look for. A, an appropriate passage to read. I have got five minutes worth of reading here. Is that can be too much? It's fine. You know, no. people have control over their remote remotes and phones. And if they get bored, <laughs> okay. I will be here to listen. Okay. No, please. What don't. I decided to do was to read you from read to you from two different books. I tried to pick passages that were sort of iconic in terms of showing you what these women were doing. So the first one is from this book, Rose Under Fire, which is about ATA pilot in World War II, who is intercepted over Germany after the invasion of Normandy and ends up behind enemy lines. And they don't really know what to do with her because they didn't expect her that she was going to turn out to be a woman when they got her back on the ground. And so they sent her to the concentration camp at Ravensbrück, which was the big German women's concentration camp for political prisoners, mostly. And so a big, a goodly chunk of this book is actually about the concentration camp at Robinsburg. There is a Soviet combat pilot in here who the main character Rose meets in the camp. So that was my first, you know, venture writing about one of these women. But the passage that I'm going to read to you is really just a kind of sample of the sort of flight that an ATA pilot would be making. So this is from the point of view of the title character, Rose, and she is ferrying her uncle, who's a high up official in the Royal Engineers, and she's ferrying him to some place that he needs to go for a meeting. And she tells the story of the flight that they have together. So it's a diary entry, and it's labeled August 7th, 1944, Ladies' Sitting Room, Prestwick Aerodrome, Scotland. I'm waiting for Uncle Roger to get out of his meeting. I have decided it is a good idea to take this notebook with me in case I get stuck somewhere again, like last week at Maid's End, so I have something to do. We had a heck of a time getting here. We had to fly through a hailstorm that came out of nowhere. It sounded like we had our heads in a bucket, that was being pelted with rocks. I don't know when I've ever been so frightened while flying. 
Roger seemed to be all unconcerned. He was in the back, in the middle of a cigarette, with his legs up on the second pilot seat. The aircraft is a proctor, not very big. Along with the hail came a bit of wind shear bumping us around, which made him accidentally kick me. I snapped angrily. Could you please put your feet down? It's amazing what a short, sharp command instantly obeyed does for your morale. I was absolutely not going to let him know how worried I was. He didn't stretch out his legs again for the rest of the flight. After we landed and I was taxiing off the runway, I said, sorry about the bumpy ride. When I switched off the engine, he reached over my shoulder and shook my hand. You're a damned fine pilot, Rosie, he said. A real credit to your father. For a moment there, I thought we were being hit by machine gun fire. I took a deep breath and let myself clench my fists at last, just to get the tension out of them. Daddy never let me hold tight to the control column. He used to make me control it with one finger, just to practice the light touch. I do it automatically now, but it sure does feel good to squeeze your hand shut after a flight like that. Is that what machine gun fire sounds like? I asked. Pretty much. Didn't you notice me looking around wildly for the Messerschmitt that was firing on us? I thought we'd had it. Ready to go down fighting, though. He held up his other hand. He'd got out his pistol. Here was me thinking he hadn't been worried. She was, Uncle Roger. It was just bad weather. And that's what kills most ATA pilots, right? You kept your head and got us down safely. I always say there's no other pilot I'd rather have in control of my plane. Except your dad, of course. He laughed and unstrapped his harness and put away his pistol. Ready to take me to France someday soon? I unlatched the door. Uncle Roger, if you can engineer getting me to fly you to France, you really are a royal engineer. They don't let any ATA pilots go to France yet. And when they do, it'll be the men. Roger gave his characteristic hump of disgust. There were American women on the beaches of Normandy four days after D-Day. Army nurse corps, plucky girls carrying all their own gear, just like the lads. And our British ladies began to arrive only a few days later. They're at the front now or just behind it. I know you're civilian pilots, but at least in a plane you can scarper home when you drop me off. You're preaching to the choir, Uncle Roger. I hauled myself out onto the wing and reached back in so he could pass me our bags. If you pull the strings, I'm ready to go. I don't believe he really can pull those strings, but it gives me a warm, excited feeling in the pit of my stomach that he thinks he can and might actually try. So that's Rose and it, her kind of twangy, all-American girl feel is because she is actually American. Her uncle is English and I should have maybe told you that before I started. But anyway, that's that, so that's Rose, the ATA pilot before she lands herself. In I water. loved it because you captured like essence of flying, you know, like you're teaching us not only about history, but about flying, but doing it in a fictional way. So it's you just you don't even realize that you're learning something that's a unique skill that I have been working very hard to master in fiction writing. It's beautiful. Well, and that's partly why I chose that section because it's got flying and it was like to be flying, but it's also got, you know, a little bit of information about, you know, what was actually going on with women at that point in the war. So, yeah. 
Yeah, no, and then there there are ways in writing where that can feel clunky, but yours not at all ever. Oh, thank you know, you, <laughs> you know, you, people can do that poorly, and you certainly don't. So it's wonderful. So what's so next? This, bit, this next bit that I'm going to read you is really just self indulgence, and it's from Codename Verity. And this was a bit that I thought I really thought that the editors would make me cut because it's it's what John Steinbeck calls hoop to doodle. It's just <laughs> the author enjoying herself and. It turns out that, like, this is one of the most quoted passages in the book. I see this turning up on on people's blogs all the time. See, your your passion just comes right through. That's when when it's really good. (laughs) So in in this, we have, well, it's kind of self-explanatory, really. But it's talking about the, the ATA pilot, who is one of the two main characters in this book. Days before Britain declared war on Germany, Maddie flew by herself to the other side of England, skimming the tops of the Pennines and avoiding the barrage balloons like silver ramparts protecting the sky around Newcastle. She followed the coast north to Bambra and Holy Island. The sun still sets quite late in the north of England in August, and Maddie on fabric wings flew low over the long sands of Holy Island and saw seals gathered there. She flew over the great castle crags of Lindisfarne and Bambra to the north and south, and over the ruins of the 12th century priory, and over all the fields stretching yellow and green towards the low Cheviot hills of Scotland. Maddie flew back following the 70-mile, 2,000-year-old dragon's back of Hadrian's Wall to Carlisle, and then south through the Lakeland Fells along Lake Windermere. The Zoring Mountains rose around her, and the poet's waters glittered beneath her in the valleys of memory, hosts of golden daffodils, swallows and Amazons, Peter Rabbit. She came home by way of Blackstone Edge above the old Roman road to avoid the smoke haze over Manchester and landed back at Oakway, sobbing with anguish and love. Love for her island home that she seemed whole and fragile from the air in the space of an afternoon, from coast to coast, holding its breath in a glass lens of summer and sunlight all about to be swallowed in nights of flame and blackout. Maddie landed at Oakway before sunset and shut down the engine, then sat in the cockpit weeping. Hang on, <laughs> give me a second. <laughs> well, yeah, you certainly do that well. Thank you. Yeah, I do like that. I do like that passage. And I did this tour. It was It was a, a round-the-world trip. And there were a number of legs to it. It wasn't like one publisher sending me on a round the world trip, but I incorporated a bunch of different things into it. And so I was gone for a month. I took off from Edinburgh, flew to Australia. From there, went to Los Angeles. From there to Toronto and the East Coast and with a stint back to Vancouver. And from there, back to Edinburgh. And we let, I think I had to change planes in London. And then I took a... a another flight, a domestic flight from London back up to Edinburgh. And I'd been away for a month and I'd been around the world. And it was a beautiful, clear day. And from 30,000 feet or whatever we were at, I could see both sides of the country as we flew back. I could see from Newcastle to Glasgow. And I was just like, it's just, just, oh my gosh, look at it, it is small and it's so beautiful. Good, I'm glad I'm the only one who gets weepy. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's wonderful. Did we talk about all of your books? Because there are seven oh. of them. Now there'll be eight that are that feature. I'm Actually, gonna have the I'm gonna have the book covers. Although I don't I need to add the last hawk, perhaps. I might not have that one yet. You know, but, the one that we've missed, I would say. The one that we've missed. Well, besides the Star Wars one. <laughs> which I still can't get my hands on. <laughs> Is this one? Yes, you have a book about women wing walkers. Yeah. It's not about that, but it yeah. features women wing walkers in the 1920s, yeah. 30s. Yeah. So so this was, this is really a book about Ethiopia. And it's about the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. And the way I framed it was from the point of view of an American family who moves there and happens to be there during the time and it's a blended family we would call it now it's it's kind of it's an atypical family as well so it's made up of the mother who learned to fly kind of with Bessie Coleman in France and with the young girl who had been hired to go along to France with her as her maid and who kind of became her best friend and they both learned to fly in France. And they, when they leave France, they put aside all this whole, like, she's my maid business because like woman whose name is Rhoda is still my maid anyway. This is something that her parents forced on her and they become a double act and they are barnstormers and they are black dove and white raven because one of them is white and one of them is black. And they each have a baby and Rhoda's baby is by this Italian pilot who she is married to. And her kind of soulmate, Delia's baby, is by a guy who was like a secretary to an Ethiopian noble who was learning to fly at the same club in France where they were flying. And the story is from the point of view of these two kids as they grow up. Delia is killed in a strike. And so Rhoda ends up looking after these kids and raising them herself. And she decides she's fed up with the with segregation and with the prejudice that Theo, who she considers to be her son at this point, is having to face as he grows up in 1920s, 1930s America. So she wants to take him and take them all to live in the wonderful kind of like idealized place of his ancestors, which is Ethiopia. And they go there and stuff goes down. But she teaches her kids to fly that she's also a nurse. And so she's kind of like making a life for herself there as a flying doctor and as a photographer. And she does all this different stuff. She's very idealistic. And she's also a little bit loopy. <laughs> but the story is told from the point of view of her kids as they're learning to fly, as they grow up in Ethiopia, and as they watch their country falling apart, their adopted country falling apart around them. So it's like out there on a limb as far as my other books are concerned. It won the Children's Africana Book Award, which is nice. That is lovely. And I love the way that you just weave the aviation into all of your other interests. <laughs> are there any groups of women in aviation history that you want to explore that you haven't had I, the opportunity? I just keep finding out more about people that I had never heard about before. I'm very interested in minority pilots, and I kind of keep a list of people that I would like to write about, both men and women. And I mean, I, that kind of grows out of being a woman pilot, you know, being the only woman learning to fly and the 
airfield where I learned to fly in 2003. I mean, how is that? <laughs> That's a great crazy. question. We're all yeah. asking ourselves. Um, yeah. So yeah, it kind of grew out of that. And I, but I just keep running into more people all the time. Forget what rabbit hole I went down, but I discovered these um, French women who were flying for the French Air Force at the beginning of World War II. And then there were these Spanish women who were flying during the Spanish Civil War. And the white squadron, who I'd never heard of until this year. Me too, actually. Yeah, Yeah. who were a Romanian group flying into the Battle of Stalingrad to do ambulance work for the Germans. So, I mean, there's just like, there are, there, it's a never-ending treasure trove, really. Yeah. It is. Well, thank you for preserving the parts that you have already and for the ones that you're going to explore in the future. We're so grateful for your work and so excited to read all of your books. I've only read a couple so far, but I have a long list of books. And I hope to, so we've talked about your body of work on the whole today, but I hope to delve deeply into an individual novel at some point in the future. So we'll definitely plan to do that. Thank you for sharing your work with us. Well, it's a real it's a real pleasure. I love talking about my books. It feels self-indulgent to be talking so much about myself, but you know, but you're not you're interviewing you're me. About, so you're not just talking <laughs> so about yourself. You're I, talking about all these women yeah. and navy. And they're so fascinating. And I, you know, I guess what I feel like it's not really fair for you to say, oh, thank you for writing about these people. It's just it's been my pleasure to write about these people, you know, and I want so much to share all the amazing things that they've done. So Thank you for reading. Thank you for listening and thank you coming home well for your collaboration in helping these stories reach a broader audience. Writing is a deeply healing and cathartic exercise. It can help you process your experiences, whether you intend to share them with the world or keep them to yourself. Living the experiences of others through reading can also help heal, validate, and create a sense of connectedness. If you're interested in hearing about how these authors brought their stories to life on the page, check out the Writer's Room interviews on the Aviatrix book review website and podcast. If you'd like to join the book club conversations, look for the Aviatrix Book Club on Facebook. All are welcome. And connect with me on social media at Literary Aviatrix. I'd love to hear from you. Blue skies and happy reading.